Welcome to the Venley Expert Talks, where we aim to inspire Web3 builders with great stories from great minds. I'm your host, Alexandra Ahrens, and I'd like to remind you that you can always reach out to us on Twitter, Discord, or LinkedIn with ideas for the podcast and questions for our guests. Welcome to episode 42 of the Venley Expert Talks. Today I'm joined by Anthony Day, podcaster, LinkedIner, and working on ecosystem development at Parity Technologies. And today we're focused on bringing people into Web3. So thank you very much for coming to talk to me. Really appreciate it. Not at all, Alex. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was a little surprised, especially after talking to Kier last time. Um, he said that you don't usually do interviews or, or uh, opportunities like this. You pass them on to him. So this was this was exciting and fun. Yeah, Kier is my delegate in all things relating to, to interviews and podcasts. Um, now, serendipity came came through on this one, and um, I'm a fan of the team and the work you guys do at Venley. So. Um, happy to jump on. Awesome. We appreciate that. Yeah. Well, then if we can get started out, I just want to kind of go through your background. Um, if we want to start with, you know, you started working in blockchain and Web3 in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and considering how new the industry is, what made you choose the path and why are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> what made me choose the path? Um, how did how did I choose the way? So mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been working in technology and innovation for about 20 years. So I've had about three phases to my career. The first being growth strategy, corporate strategy, customer strategy. So helping to understand how to, how to help companies and organizations and projects achieve growth. That was always kind of where it started. Then around the mid 2000s, you saw the kind of era of open banking and what became known as digital strategy, where you couldn't just create strategy in a bubble and you couldn't develop technology in isolation without it being critically linked to customer journeys, customer experience. And so a big part of what I would do there would be working with large organizations, financial institutions, consumer goods companies to help implement technology that helped them to grow, help them to drive the customer experience. I had a number of product owner roles, um, proposition development roles where we we're actually building big software platforms, which was super interesting, albeit you know, for centralized standalone organizations. And then, you know, come 2016, I found myself in Ireland, in Deloitte, and their center of excellence for blockchain is, is based there. It's a delivery center designed for building, launching, and maintaining blockchain platforms for enterprise governments and startups. And at that time, we were working with all the flavors of blockchain under the sun. So we were working with Ethereum, Quorum, Corda, EOS, Hyperledger Fabric, all of the kind of, we have, we have many more layer ones these days, but at that time we were working with a whole range of different ones. And that was already an interesting challenge for our development team and our architects because they had a range of um, different blockchains that they had to learn and pick up and drop from time to time, which is super interesting. And you know, serendipity, I got the opportunity to lead the team as a COO um, alongside a CTO friend of mine, Antonio Senatore, who was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And that was really the, the universe putting that in my lap saying, would you like to go on this journey? And the more I looked at decentralized technology, the more I looked into what's possible with both public and private networks, the way of developing applications or infrastructure in a different way, the way of breaking up orthodoxies in certain industries or taking intermediaries out and developing systems that could run by themselves, that were unstoppable, that were automated, that were more efficient that could improve um, quality of outcomes that could reduce risk in all sorts of different places. Those are the technology capabilities that we've been talking about for years, but now we could do that in a very different way. And the more you look at how do you restructure industries or how do you rewire the way we do the jobs we've always been wanting to do, or we've always needed to do as citizens, people, families, businesses, the more you look at how to rewire things, the more you see what's possible with decentralized technology, the more you keep looking. It's not like you run out of places to go looking for intermediaries. It's not like you go running out of customer journeys or user journeys that need to be completely reimagined. And so it, it continued to um, stimulate my interest for digital transformation just in a whole bunch of different ways. And so for me, that was the start of an incredible journey that led on to IBM 
being at the time and, and probably still the largest and best known enterprise blockchain or enterprise distributed ledger developer and platform builder in the world. And gradually working my way closer and closer to, I guess, pure Web3, public permissionless blockchains. And given the choice of, you know, where do I go after IBM, number of different layer ones, different layer twos, different projects. I looked at Polkadot as what I believe to the most be the most differentiated technology at the time. And, and I still see as highly differentiated compared to you know, Ethereum alike layer ones that just preach fast, cheap and green. When you look at forkless upgrades, when you look at having substrate as the ability to build other parachains or app chains on top with the ability to trans transmit data and assets without bridges, without risks, the ability to upgrade the chain over time without having to go through forks. This is these are significant for the, long, the longevity of the next generation of blockchains once we figure out the next generation of applications. And I, I was I was sold. You know, it's an incredible team, brilliant engineers, brilliant engineering, brilliant tech. It's not the only blockchain game out there, but it's a fantastic place to go to work. Very cool journey. So obviously not planning on leaving anytime soon. <laughs> I, the further you go down the Web3 rabbit hole that everybody mentions, <laughs> the more you find areas of interest, people who are like-minded, projects mm -hmm. or issues or opportunities to do great work. And I think as long as you're excited by the jobs you get to do every day or you get to have conversations with people as passionate as you are who would love a different or I don't know, contradicting perspective on what they think is possible. The more there's work to do and the more there's interesting people to do it with, the more I'm interested to keep going. Yeah. Wow. Great. You kind of touched on it there in your, uh, your journey about uh, working with IBM in relation to blockchain. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so so IBM approached me. They were obviously scaling up a team that was already seen as number one from an enterprise and government perspective. So to make a slight distinction, a lot of the work that IBM was doing at the time was building consortia of industry players to address industry-wide problems. Not to say that's a bad thing. In some cases, it's the only way you can deliver transformation because either you have heavily regulated industries, you have a significant regulatory burden around how data is identified, processed, managed, aggregated. Um, it's very, very different to public permissionless blockchains. And I'm, I'm not saying that either is better than the other. They are two different architectures that we can deploy in different settings. Building consortia is super hard. Right? Being able to get together giant organizations, you know, Fortune 500 companies who have been traditionally competing with each other, who hated each other, and then suddenly you want to bring them into a room together, tell them to be friends and create a startup together. Um, that's not easy. That's, <laughs> it's, it's important for the progress of an industry to identify, are there big problems we can solve together and try and see whether you can get them at a table together, whether you can get past antitrust whether you can even just get to a term sheet that says, this is what we agree we'd like to work together on and here's what we're going to each invest. Here's the charter against which we're going to create things. Really, really interesting because that taught me about thinking big. It taught me about what it takes to make real significant change in any industry and the role of incumbents in that change. It's very easy for IBM to say, right, well, we'll just, do, we'll just create a software as a service and everybody can plug into that and, and off we go. Oftentimes, they wouldn't trust a single IBM to do that. So you, you create these consortiums. IBM did have its own software product as well. It had hundreds of references of really exciting work that was being done all around the world. And you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't wish for a deeper toy box. Incredible engineers, great talent. You know, the sun never sets on IBM's blockchain delivery capability around the world as well. So you'd always have somebody who is up willing to give you an opinion or jump on and talk about how do we use something with digital identity or how do we solve a particular problem in supply chain transparency. Getting under the real nuts and bolts of how industries work to a very granular level in terms of its data and its technology is something that I think a lot of Web3 doesn't get to see today because either we're creating something from scratch or we haven't yet got to industry or vertical specific applications where that level of analysis was needed, right? For example, people working in and around Web3 have been saying, oh, it's going to transform the music industry tomorrow. And if we have NFTs and digital assets, you know, Apple and Spotify are toast. 
And the truth is that is a fallacy. The, the technical lock-in, the legal lock-in, the process lock-in of the way that music and media is currently delivered and what would need to be true bottom-up for consumers and artists to turn that tide and change that, is, it's, not, it's not impossible, but the amount of investment or the amount of groundswell that would be required to drive that change is so significant that that it's not it's not enough just to say oh this will change blockchain will change blockchain will transform you have to go and do it and if you don't have an appreciation for how it works today it's very very diff- difficult to create a commercial case business case um transformation strategy to make it the way you'd like it to be and to succeed at scale and so i'm very grateful for that learning experience with ibm i i knew within a couple of years though that i wanted to go deeper I had friends who were working at, you know, at layer ones who were building their own decentralized app projects. And, you know, after two years at IBM or three years at IBM, I was like, no, I, I, I need to, I need to go, I need to go deeper. I need to do something different. I need to try this as the next evolution of my journey. And so here I am. Great. Yeah. So with talking about kind of everything you just touched on, which was a lot, but everything there at the end, um, is it, kind of big companies that you think we need to focus on to to bring us to that next stage of web3 or is it going to be a bunch of the smaller companies that that we should focus on focus our intentions on I think history's shown us that you can have small startups that scale quickly the airbnbs the ubers of the world didn't spin out of you know large monolithic organizations they really grassroots bootstrap their way to success by having a fantastic product with a really compelling model. If you look at, you know, Axie Infinity as a as a computer game based on web3 technology scaling to 2 million 2.5 million users over the course of a year because it had gamification mechanics and some compelling commercial upside. That's that's probably what you might consider success. You know, maybe some of the DeFi protocols out there or some of the DeFi applications you could consider seeing in the hundreds of thousands or maybe even of the millions of users, but it's not 10 millions. It's not hundreds of millions. You know, it's not um, Facebook or Google or Apple scale yet. I think when you segment what would need to be true for us to see Web3 at scale, I think thing one, you've got to differentiate between B2B and B2C use cases too. I think a huge amount of, let's take Metaverse, for example, Metaverse use cases are B2B or internal to an organization. So you've got colleagues in different jurisdictions around the world using VR headsets to co-create something, a product, a service, because they can't be in a physical room together. Lockdown taught us a lot about that. And so a lot of the metaverse use cases will be about augmented reality or co-creation in a business setting or in a commercial setting. It's not going to be that we're all going to be running around with no legs um, floating around Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. Right? I mean, that may still be the case. And, oh God. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that maybe that's got a future. But I think again, if you if you peel it back to what are the jobs that we're trying to do, and where does decentralization or data aggregation or the ability for users to own and control assets, their identity, etc., where do these things scale well? Where do you not need to have strong individual user identity where do you want to be able to create that in a digital only way or where digital and physical blend well you'll see success the the closer you get to already digitized assets you'll you'll see earlier wins right so the earliest wins in in blockchain and web3 were in finance right the likes of ripple and stellar and and interbank payments for example because the assets are already digital Uh, gaming for example, this is sort of the next horizon of Web3. You've already seen something like $9 billion invested in Web3 gaming in 2022 alone. Significant amount of capital because the games, the assets generated by the games are already digital. You've already got you know, $180 billion spent on Web2 gaming per year, about $50 million of which is on in-game items and skins. So that's a ready-made market for people who like the concept of digital art or digital content and then we just need to overlay, why does the Web3 experience make this better? Is it about interoperability? Is it about monetization of content or, or assets? 
how do we make that more compelling overall? Um, those assets, when we then get into music and media, we kind of talked about that. That's, a, that's tricky. When we get into decentralized social media or digital identity or verification of credentials, and again, having the user control, manage, monetize those sorts of things. Um, talking with Hartmut Muller from Mercedes-Benz, when you then get into your vehicle and the data that's created by your vehicle, you know, will we see our Teslas mining Bitcoins natively? Probably not. But the amount of sensor data that we create from the devices or the vehicles or the things that we own, how can that be accessed and made available on a marketplace for the world? These are places that with good applications, use of those sensors or that underlying tech we've already got and an interface to a wallet, we can unlock lots in terms of data quality, accessibility of data, and then the ability for users to monetize. When it comes to energy and management of the grid, again, use cases there in assets that are already digitized. So long form answer of what was a quite concise question, you're not going to see, I think, one killer app for decentralization or for Web3 as a concept. You're going to see the problem approached in a multitude of different ways in different settings, B2B and B2C, or B2G, or G2C, when you, when you include government as well, government and, and kind of co-creation and the metaverse, I think there's a strong story there too. So I don't want to put my, my finger on any one particular individual use case because I think the real answer is more nuanced than that. No, no, that's fair. I think that's a, yeah, maybe not super concise, but very thorough and uh, yeah. Very yeah, welcome answer. to how I answer questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. I love it. Um, I do want to take a step back a little bit. We got a little bit focused there for a second. But if we could start out, um, because we're talking today about bringing people into the space, um, you know, a lot of people who aren't in it yet kind of go, why? What? What's the point? And I want to hear in your words what is the importance of becoming familiar with Web3 right now? That's a really important question to ask. And again, I think you can come at it from a number of different ways because nobody has an outright obligation to download a Web3 wallet to purchase some tokens and then try and do something with those tokens. Right. Ultimately, what we as human beings are trying to do is we're trying to go about our daily lives. We use technology, we use applications, we use physical equipment to help us to manage our finances, to do our jobs, to have fun, to spend time with our families, to prepare for the future, to collaborate with other organizations and so on. And where newer technology can make that better, happy days, right? Where Web3 technology can preserve individuals' privacy or their right to privacy, where it can provide greater trust in the organizations that we buy from, or the trade, the individual trading or connectivity between peer-to-peer, where it allows access to funding or capital. From, from a use of applications perspective, this is where we have to create the better applications. It's not saying, well, if suddenly me, Anthony, I start using the blockchain more, my life will be better. It's an infrastructure technology. It sits underneath the applications that we as citizens or businesses get to use. So it's better to be able to say, I'm using insert name of DeFi app here so I don't shill somebody by mistake um, or, or end up promoting somebody who goes down in the FTX crisis. That's going to date the show, by the way. Sorry for that. Um, but, you know, I, We're going to talk about that later for sure. Yeah, yeah. We'll get there. But you know, I use DeFi platform X because that allows me to get a better return on my savings than if I keep my money in the bank. Or if I play this certain game, I can keep the skins or the assets and then I can go and use them in another game or that I get rewards to then go and play somewhere else because there's a marketplace for these things or there's interconnectivity between those things. Um, if I have a credential that's on this particular application, it's there forever for me. It's, it exists in perpetuity. I don't have to email somebody every time to be able to get hold of it or my credentials are immediately recognized on LinkedIn or uh, Glassdoor or wherever else it might be, because those integrations have been conducted already. Those are some of the more poignant reasons to think about why is blockchain going to make sense. And at the stage we are in Web3, 
there's not that many applications where you'd say, you know what, these are must-use applications for everybody on the planet. Brave browser would be an interesting one because you're saying, well, I, I'm happy to share my browsing data with you instead of Google, and in exchange for that, I get a small monetary reward. Right? Um, Helium, same story. You know, I'm prepared to share some of my bandwidth, my Wi-Fi with somebody, or use that to to store information in exchange for something, and that's open and public and available for everybody. Filecoin. I'm prepared to share, as we had with Napster back in the day, I'm prepared to share a proportion of my storage capacity with the world so that they can store data and I can get a small financial reward for something that I'm not using or something that I've invested in, but I'm not utilizing fully. Um, you can apply the same logic to computing power for mining, but mining Bitcoin these days is a big infrastructure game. It's not that people are going to be using a proportion of their CPU space anymore to be doing that. And less so, but we may get to that place next. And so if we're, if we're tying up used capacity that's not available, we might be getting into a good space. The shortcut answer is, you know, buy Bitcoin, it'll go to the moon and you'll suddenly create generational wealth. That's sort of the intellectual shortcut answer, which says there's there's kind of crypto web three, or there's kind of there's crypto money, and then there's crypto technology. And I spend more of my time thinking about how are we building technology applications that through decentralization end up being more useful to people because they're just better apps mm -hmm. or they provide better outcomes for people or companies. Mm -hmm. Do you feel in any way that the crypto money aspect maybe scares people away at certain points? It certainly creates bias. So mm -hmm. when... Even, even today, but over the last six years, the second you walk into a conversation with someone saying, I work with blockchain technology, nine times out of 10, either the first response will be, oh, that's Bitcoin, isn't it? Or that's related <laughs> to Bitcoin or you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, now maybe some more of the responses are a bit more nuanced or you know, if you live where I live, you end up being around a whole bunch of people in Web3 and say, like, oh, tell me which DAO you work for. It's like, really? <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, that's super cool. The... What gets promoted in the headlines to everyday people who don't spend time working with this technology every day, in the same way as you know, when when you talk about artificial intelligence, what's the first thing you think of? Oh, was, isn't that related to that movie with Will Smith in it? Right? Mm -hmm. or, or take take you know your your next alternative best, uh, isn't that Alexa? Or you know the immediate technology reference or the, the reference case for how a technology gets applied can bias our next response, right? If, if I hate the user experience of Alexa or Alexa keeps chirping in when I'm in the middle of a conversation, I'm going to have negative associations with Alexa. And I'm going to, I'm going to, my first visceral instinct is AI is annoying. Whereas in reality, it has so many applications and so many different places to be used. It's a beautiful technology. It's just certain interfaces or certain day-to-day -day experience of it is somewhat limited. The crypto stuff gets the headlines. Because assets increasing in value faster than the stock market, people pay attention to because it has money related to it. Where you see scams or projects going under, that makes the headlines and people suddenly feel fear. Right? Where it relates to fear or greed, typically people will pay attention because those are the human emotions that get most stirred up on a day-to-day -day basis or fear of missing out. So to that extent, the crypto money side of things, unfortunately, has had the you know, the downside of creating negative headlines. On a plus side, the word blockchain is now a bit more widely known, so people at least know it's out there. You know, I don't think it's no no news is bad news, but I think we we will have to accept that when we talk about what we do, we always will incur a degree of bias in the audience that we talk to. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fair. Um, another kind of maybe basic question, but I think is, is very important here. Um, first of all, can you explain web three, like you're explaining it to a 10 year old? And then kind of the second half of this is, and maybe you can use this in that explanation is what are the main differences between web two, what everybody's used to and web three? Yeah. I've heard the five-year-old one. I wonder what's the difference between a five-year-old and a 10-year-old. <laughs> okay, seven. go with a five-year-old if you prefer. I'm going I'm to try and imagine explaining what I do between my daughter and my son and try and see how I get on with it. Um, 
I mean, most at this point will be familiar with the concept of computers and computers run applications. Where, where the information and where the processing of those applications happens is either with an individual company or with a collection of different people managing managing that particular infrastructure. I have already started poorly here because now I have to explain company and infrastructure. And neither of those are 10-year-old terms that are useful. But <laughs> the applications that we love, the computer games that we play, the Zoom calls that we run, the browsers that we use on our computers are supported by companies. If those are if those are managed by one individual company, if that company has a problem or if that company suddenly decides to be evil, we may have a problem with how our applications run in future or what happens to the data that we create in those applications. If you have a consortium of parties or if you have a network of different parties supporting the network, it's much harder for those companies to become evil and do bad things with our data and applications. And so in this case, where you have blockchain or decentralized technology, that allows us to spread the risk of something evil happening to the computers and applications that we love. Good versus evil. I did like that. I was waiting for like Superman or something to pop in there. But <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. So you kind of insert a little bit the, the differences between Web 2 and Web 3. Is there anything else that you think is important to put in there at this point? Yeah, I think the biggest transition from Web 1 to 2 to 3 was, you know, Web 1 was publish, which is... I can create a web page, I can put something up there and it sits there statically. Web 2 created the idea of dynamic content, the idea of us being able to transact between different parties. The concept of Web 3 creates a couple of other levels on top, which mainly relates to ownership of data and assets with an individual. So the, 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 the third web or Web 3 recognizes an individual's identity. It recognizes the assets they hold it allows individuals to control what happens next with those data and assets. Whereas in Web 2, that's more under the control of individual platforms or the platforms that host the activities or the data in which we interact with. Good. Okay. Thank you. Um, as you said there, one of the, the main benefits is um, data ownership. Some other ones that we talk about a lot are security and big advantages for creators. Um, are there any that you could add to that list or are there any that you think are more important or more revolutionary than others? I think persistence is important. So the difference between a computer game and the metaverse is when you switch on a computer game, you can go in, play around, shoot a bunch of stuff up and you, know, you, you reset and tomorrow morning you can go back and, and start a fresh game. If you have the metaverse or if you have a Web3 platform where you are publishing data, where you're transacting, where you're moving money around, moving assets or tokens around, when that's written to the ledger, it's there immutably and permanently. So you have a permanent record of what happens. You can't delete a tweet. Right? You can't remove the history. If you lost a game or if you lost a challenge or if you made a particular decision to buy something, you know, whether you had a couple of beers before you made that purchase or not, it's, it's, it's there, it's persistent. That matters in a whole bunch of reasons because censorship from government, censorship of individuals trying to cover their tracks and actions or individual companies becoming evil or you know, trying to present a version of the truth that is in some way falsified or benefits them, there's always a commercial incentive to cheat or lie in some cases, and the more control others have over the data and the history, the easier it is for them to cover up or to falsify the truth or to present an incorrect picture to the world. That's not to say that people don't also post stuff to blockchains that's garbage or that everything on the blockchain is truthful. That's not necessarily the case. But with, with persistent technology and open source code, I think that allows us to have greater trust and transparency in what's happened and also the confidence that whatever is there has not been tampered with. And so persistence in metaverse and co-creation spaces means that if you, if you dip out, whatever you've done still remains there. Um, the transparency and open source nature of the code is super important too, because as we build applications, platforms, infrastructure, maybe the first version of what we create isn't great, 
but somebody else can pick up the code base and start creating version two or version three or version four. Now, that creates a risk to some extent of the products you build being forked or the applications you build being copied by somebody else and somebody else building something better. That's a competitive risk, and some people feel deeply uncomfortable with that. But from the improvement and betterment of society and Web3 in general, that philosophy or that principle is critically important. You know, if Meta spends 15 billion on its legless metaverse and it ends up being useless, it's going to be much, much harder for them to take and run with the next version of that. Right? They're going to have to go through lawyers. They're going to have to try and sell that IP or find somebody else who's prepared to take that on and make the investment. If that, sort, if that code is made open source and available to all, other developers, other programmers, other teams can pick that up and run with it with less cost or with almost no cost and immediately start iterating and improving upon it. That also lowers the barriers to entry for startups or individual developers to get into working with what we have today. So the ability to find repositories of code that you can learn and improve your skills from, the ability for you to contribute to projects on an open source basis based on a particular skill set, language, or part of the value chain that you see is also really, really powerful. So we're also empowering anybody, any time with any family situation. Maybe you can't work nine to five. Maybe uh, you have a particular burden that, that you bear during the course of 24 hours. That means you can't work in an office. With Web3, with open source software development, the barriers to participation, I believe, are much, much lower. And for people, society, engagement in the economy, I think those are all very powerful things too. Definitely. So as you just said, it does open a lot of doors for people who maybe didn't have the same opportunities before. Are there people or are those the people who we should be specifically focusing on bringing into the space right now? Or is there a different subset you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so I think Web3 in general requires every single skill set under the sun. It has been an engineering-led discipline for the longest time. But when you look at layer ones, foundations, projects, maybe the first five staff members are all engineers and a CTO or a co-founder or a commercial technical co-founder. But as these organizations start scaling, they require marketing, legal, project management, program management, people operations, risk management, treasury management, token economics. Take your pick. Every single traditional corporate's role or specificity that you can name is being used somewhere by a Web3 company. Maybe it's, like I said, maybe it's not the first five members of a team, but as, as that team grows, as they bootstrap or as they get funding, it just becomes a different type of corporate entity. Maybe the structure is a foundation rather than a for profit, or maybe the growth organization is more decentralized. It's a decentralized autonomous organization with its own token-based remuneration model. Doesn't matter. We still need those skills in legal risk, human resources, growth, strategy, risk management, quality assurance, DevOps, infrastructure management. I can keep going on. There, <laughs> there is every single role required in Web3 today, just as there is in Web2. And the newer roles are those that are more focused on decentralized infrastructure, which may be Web2 is less, is less common or is required less, but cryptography, network management, security management, et cetera, all of the above. Education, communication, UI, um, all, of, all of those are still critical requirements in our Web3. So I'm not going to point to anyone in isolation because I think it's more powerful to point to the fact that there is no skill set that you have learned today that is not valid in Web3, except maybe COBOL. Um, programming. But even so, I'm sure there's someone who's going to prove me wrong on that, probably Mahisio Magaldi. But um, I think that's a more important statement to make is that the barriers to entry in Web3 and blockchain have never been lower, and that will continue to be the case. Okay. Okay, that's an interesting statement. All right. Maybe talking about a group that people don't focus on, maybe they are not in their working years anymore. Um, is it important to bring in the older generation? Is it important to focus on moving those guys from Facebook into the metaverse? I think at the point where technology benefits 
citizens or individuals' lives, we should have an incentive to help them understand, appreciate, and then opt in to whatever we create. Like I said before, blockchain as a technology has no divine right to adoption. And for the most part, the pure blockchain layer one, layer two is infrastructure that most people will never interact with on a code based level. It's the applications or the experiences that we build on top of that that matter. And if we've learned anything from Web 2, it's that, that the appification and simplification of the user experience will help us to drive adoption. Accessibility is critical everywhere. And if self-custody, management of keys, management of security, management of passwords is overly complicated or we can't find a solution for people who are less digitally savvy or people who may struggle with using computers or app applications on phones, then we've got to find a model for that. It could be cooperatives, you know, physical people cooperatives in physical places. It might be that we have to have a physical digital mix of what gets done. It might be that we have to have interaction with the post office in different jurisdictions or, or whichever the you know, common um, government organization where people of a certain generation would, would more commonly interact with or have a level, level of trust with. Anywhere that happens, you're then kind of creating Web 2.5, which is that kind of crossover between pure Web 3, the pure principles of self-custody, no intermediaries, et cetera. I don't think all of our applications and all of the engagement we're going to have with Web 3 is going to be at that level, because I think that's not pragmatic. You are going to see, in the same way as we have centralized exchanges today, common entry points to Web 3 that require a degree of trust. And if we want to reap the benefits of that, we may have to sacrifice some degree of security or control. That's, that's, that's I think, the necessa necessary way that technology scales. Is it important for the elderly generations to engage with Web3? Only if it's worth their while. And if it isn't, don't do it. I, I could see that um, maybe the, the, the pension fund of Gladys's, um, you know, private pension, probably not state pension, but maybe even at some point state pension, maybe those investment funds are holding digital assets. They may be holding Bitcoin and Ethereum as part of their portfolio of investment assets. So to some extent, the elderly may already have, to some degree, exposure to Web3 assets or technology, maybe without knowing it. And maybe that's enough. Maybe we don't need to be going further than that. Maybe they don't need to be using Brave Browser or having tokens or having their cars pay for their own fuel by sharing data to the internet. But if, if they could do that and Web3 technology was underneath and the experience was easy, why not? That's fair. I just, I remember being a child, I, at like the local library, there were classes a little bit more geared toward elderly folk to come in and learn the internet. So it's an interesting direction um, <laughs> to think of. Yeah. If, and if in that class, right, the, the point was about interaction with a new user interface that was a computer screen, a mouse, windows and applications, I think that matters. Web3 doesn't change the user interface that much. It changes some of the steps in the user journey, absolutely. But the ability to interact with a computer, type on a keyboard, send messages and, and use applications, I want to believe that the front end of the Web3 experience builds on knowledge that most already have. Whether we need to go deeper into how applications work or how we manage wallets, custodies, and, and security, I think time will tell on that one. Fair enough. We've gotten a little taste of it here as well, but one of the things and one of the reasons I, I asked you to join me on the show was um, the way that you communicate with your audience. Uh, you use a lot of humor, you use a lot of kind of easy to understand terminology. Um, and I guess my question is, how important is that when bringing people into this space? Is that something you really aim to do to kind of tamp down on tech terms and uh, make it more accessible? I think it's absolutely critical to keep it as simple, jargon-free and straightforward as possible, no matter what you do, right? Whether you're a doctor trying to explain why some, somebody's body part hurts, whether you are somebody working in technology or whether you're working at the grocery store trying to explain the ingredients of a particular product, Helping people understand in relatable terms and show interest or care for what's happening should be as simple and engaging as possible in everything we do. If you're interested in having those people 
care, buy in, act responsibly around what you do. You know, Web3, blockchain, cryptocurrency, cryptography generally are quite impenetrable domains technically. And so trying to understand them at a level of detail, if I, I was trying to explain zero knowledge rollups to you, or if I was trying to explain SHA-256 cryptography, it might take me a few diagrams and a bit of time, but I reckon I could give it a go. But does that matter? Or is it more a case of saying, I would like you to know that the data you're sharing is anonymized? Or when we keep a record of something, it's shortened and anonymized so people can't read it in plain text. And that's important for security or privacy. Or we want to compress a certain amount of data so it doesn't cost us more or take more time for us to store it all. We want to be efficient with what we do. Um, when I talk about the concept of immutability has been used over and over again as one of the earliest phrases of why blockchain or why Web3 matters. Nobody really comes across the idea of immutability on a daily basis. It's not something that, you know, uh, t tell me one thing that isn't Web3 that you, that you would consider immutable, right? Or, uh, there's, there's one for the audience, right? And, and answers in yeah. the comments. Please come back to us. If you were going to say that, you know, something that you would describe as immutable, on a day-to-day -day basis, and you'd struggle, right? If you replace that with the term unstoppable or persistent, maybe even persist persistent is a phrase we probably use more often or a word we use more often, but even those are quite difficult. And so a lot of the early stage references or terminology, smart contracts being another great example, have, have come from being engineering-led or engineer-developed terms that engineers can relate to, but that mere mortals can't. And so the more we describe the benefits of things in a way that you can understand how does this, how does this help me? The more you can describe the technology capabilities that are put together to build something or to create something, the more you can help explain the component parts of what we're putting together and why that's good. Again, in simple terms, the more people can create their own analogies or examples or memorable references for, oh, well, I could do that. Oh, well, if that's what that's about, then maybe I could do that here. Or, oh, if actually we don't need a middleman for this and we can just have the software run this for us, I could automate X, Y, Z. Or I could bring data together from these different parties and not worry about somebody holding all of it. These, these are references that people will know instinctively in their day-to-day -day lives, in work or, or, or you know, their private lives, because they're living it every day. I can't explain to you exactly how um, undersea drilling works or what it takes to build a tunnel between countries underwater or exactly how an airplane engine flies the engine doesn't fly the wing flies but how an engine <laughs> forms that allows an airplane to fly <laughs> but there are people who understand the processes that get there and what's involved and which parties and so on and if it involves data applications something happening between multiple parties and so on there's a chance that blockchain and web3 may be able to help and so our job is to give those people the component parts and the recipes of what they can do with it, not some sort of fancy decision tree diagram of should you use blockchain or not, right? That's, that's giving the person a fish story. What you're trying to give them is the fishing rod to go after transformation on their own terms. Great. And where do people find those fishing rods? Where can people go to find consistent, reliable information to, to figure this all out? That's a really good way of phrasing that question because i don't think anybody out there consistently provides amazing content all of the time i think it's useful to curate multiple perspectives particularly on web3 because one it's moving very quickly two the domain is a mix of technology and applications there are also lots of people out there who will be posting regularly but not necessarily with a great degree of depth or understanding all of the time I don't profess to understand to a highly granular level everything that I post all of the time. But again, my interest is posting content that will help people to think, that will ask or present provoking questions that they can then go and research further. It's not really about me having all of the answers, but more shining a light on stuff that I think is interesting to then start creating a conversation or to then be able to have others go and research in their own time. Is this relevant for me? Is this interesting for me? Do I need to learn about this? Or who else is doing this? Who can I reach out to? So I curate my information from LinkedIn, from crypto Twitter periodically, although I often say, you know, beware there be dragons in crypto Twitter. 
it is <laughs> a lot of parody accounts, a lot of misinformation, a lot of people who are who will benefit directly from you taking action on their recommendations. So a big part of when you when you see who's posting, ask a little bit about what is the motivation of this person posting. Right? When I when I post, typically it's because I have an interest in my audience understanding more about what I do so that they may take an interest in what I build or in the projects that I work with. I'm not shilling a token, I'm not shilling Polkadot. I'm just trying to bring more people to Web3 in an appropriate way so that they can ask questions and get help from us when they get here. Is that a nefarious objective? I hope not. Um, other people may be closer to shilling particular projects and applications that may not represent um, a fair or objective view of what they're trying, what, what they would like as an outcome or their interests and your interests are not aligned. So I would curate a mix of LinkedIn, some Twitter, some Twitter follow, some Twitter um, influencers or posters who genuinely post on topics or areas that you find interesting. There's a whole bunch of useful podcasts out there from, you know, blockchain 101 type stuff to more granular, some more enterprise, some more crypto. Uh, for those who care, I have a show called Blockchain Won't Save the World. More specifically, in the last year and a half, I've been focused on telling the story of what's gone before. So the soap opera or the history of how blockchain and crypto has evolved in countries that get less visibility. So Brazil, Israel, India, Japan, Malta, Australia, Netherlands, Germany, the UAE. How, how did it start? We all got the Bitcoin white paper, but where did it go from there? Was it government-led? Was it startup-led? Was there regulation? Were there major influencers involved? Were there scams and scandals? The soap opera of blockchain and Web3 has been so fascinating and so different in so many different ways. I find that as an interesting way to get people interested because it's telling the story of people, not telling the story of technology. Um, also, loads of, of websites out there on YouTube that you can go, sorry, pages on YouTube that you can go check out that do blockchain 101 stuff, basic stuff, introductory stuff. There are a ton of university courses now you can take or um, short courses on LinkedIn learning around how to learn more about uh, Web3 blockchain, technical, non-technical. There's a lot. And I would say try and curate a basket of all of those things. You know, Twitter for what's going on right now, LinkedIn for a decent filter of what is um, happening now without the hype or without unnecessary hype. YouTube for long form explainers and then training if you really want to go deeper, because honestly, it's not beyond anybody to work in Web3 or to, to work for a blockchain project or a layer one or layer two foundation, whatever it could be. If you have interest in this space and you want to make it your vocation, that's very easy to do today with not too many steps and not too much time. Yep. Maybe one day when it all kind of settles a little bit, we can have one of those baskets put together for us. But yeah, unfortunately, at this point, it's a pick your own adventure type thing. <laughs> Good. So when do you think we will reach the, the critical mass point of Web3? And what kind of setbacks do you foresee? Obviously, we've had the FTX situation. Um, do you count that as a big setback? Or is that something that you think... We're going to get past it just fine. I think the evolution of Web3 has been a, a series of cycles and realizations in the same way as we've seen with the internet, Web1, Web2, technology startups as a concept. I often like to think of Web3 as a slightly new form of high-growth tech stocks, is that these are slightly uncertain times. We don't necessarily know who's going to win there's a significant amount of capital involved, and that can sometimes be a positive or a negative. Right? If people are driven by money rather than other alternative outcomes related to scaling, that can drive certain behavior. We've seen in the kind of early rush to ICOs, any, any project launching could raise a token and capture the imagination and get a bunch of money, but then the ability or likelihood for those projects to turn that funding into real software came came as a bit of a risk. We've seen with the recent macroeconomic picture, the willingness for institutions, retail investors to spend money or to invest in projects in Web3 
has has suffered. And as a result, market caps have suffered. But the same can be true of the, the Fortune 500 and specifically in tech stocks. So that's not a unique to Web3 problem. That's just showing that we move with the rest of the market, generally speaking, in that issue. When you look at failings of venture capital firms or centralized exchanges, that's a failure of the traditional model of capitalism and venture funding. That's not a failure of Web3 software. That's not a failure of decentralized finance as a, as a model or as a concept. That is, if you look at FTX specifically, that's mis- mismanagement of funds or mismanagement of an investment business that deserved to rightly go under. The sad fact of life is that with that comes those people that are affected, those people's funds that were misused, the liabilities to others in in Web3, who as a result may now find themselves short of capital, big projects and small, the lesser ability to make markets on smaller tokens that may have less liquidity, and as a result, might be harder for them to bootstrap and scale. That's not a unique to Web3 problem necessarily. It doesn't prove that Web3 as a model is broken at all. It hasn't really affected the technology. I think where might we see a significant challenge if we see a major layer one hack that that shows that there is a a resilience problem or a security problem in the way blockchains are architected? That could be a challenge. We haven't seen it yet. We have a number of people looking at quantum and quantum resistance of cryptography. Quantum is something that both good and bad have. And so if we increase the cryptography or if we increase the burden of cryptography, increase the challenge of cryptography for those computers to then hack, we can continue and we can move on. We can fork networks if we need to. Um, I don't see any significant headwinds. Capital, because Web3 are high growth tech stocks, is going to be necessary. The implication of those lending capital and then what that means on token prices and investors and retail and whether projects end up rugging a bunch of investors as opposed to delivering real value over the course of time, I think that can be a break on progress. But at the same time, you have a number of very well-capitalized projects. You have very mature technology infrastructure that's being used at scale today. Every single use case in every single industry is being explored and has been being explored for six years. We've never been in a better space, and the pace of change will never be slower than it is now. And I think that is all positive. Um, Whether we see a breakthrough in 12 months or 24 months or 36 months, I don't think it actually matters because we're still creating this body of work, this curation of open source code and the applications that we're building, whether move to earn project X becomes a dramatic success in version one or it's a dramatic Ponzi. Okay, maybe version one doesn't succeed, but when they get to version three and they figure out how the commercial model works, that could become the next Pokemon Go and everybody ends up using it, whether they like it or not, because they've actually figured out it's not about the code, it's about the overall proposition. And this level of commercial user vertical depth is only growing over time. A lot of the early stage involvement with Web3 has been proof of engineering. We're next going to get towards proof of user value and commercial viability, which will, over the long run, see an even greater acceleration in progress, in my view. Great. Without talking about a timeline, what does your Web3 utopia look like? I'm not sure I've ever fully architected a Web3 utopia, because I think it's very difficult to predict a future where you know web web3 is at scale and where does it work because we're still exploring so many different facets of it mm-hmm. in terms of what i believe it ends up looking like i don't think web3 replaces web2 because i think there is there's certain ways of developing software and applications that won't die i think if we see the popularity of decentralized identity or credentials or privacy management being either regulated in or being the de facto choice for consumers, you'll see Web3 wallet integrations increasingly popular. You'll see more of our lives tracked on chain as opposed to in cloud servers. 
I think the important next evolution of what comes next is the ability for us to allow non-blockchain developers to engage with decentralized ledger technology. So the I'm not saying the utopia is more SDKs and low-code solutions, but I think the next horizon should be a mix of a mix of aggregation software or aggregation front ends that allow us to you know, booking.com style, bring together the best of Web3 to allow somebody to have a dashboard of the applications that they'd like to use, as opposed to navigating to a whole bunch of weird websites and places with XYZ at the end, as opposed to .com, that feels weird where the user experience is different, where the overall experience is, is unfamiliar. Simplifying that front end and bringing more to the users in a simple way will be a part of it bringing web three pluggable composable software to non-blockchain developers with sdks or low code solutions or apis will be an important next step as well and so i see that playing a significant role in the journey to a web three utopia where where we win is where people where everybody who buys into the idea or the principles of what web three presents where where there is everybody who wants that they can actually use it, right? And where people don't want that or it's too complicated or they're happy where they are today, they should stay there and they should stay on this version of the web because it suits them better or because the experience of trusting others to look after things on their behalf is something that they prefer and that, that they don't want to step into another version of, of what happens next. I had a, a, a conversation, I was in Montenegro speaking at an event and, and a, and a I talked about some of the similar concepts we talked about today. And the guy comes up to me and says, um, how much of what you just said was true? I was like, well, all of it, you know, the, the data that they presented, the, you know, what's the state of what's being built? What are the competitive dynamics? Is there, well, all of that's true. I said, well, well why do we need Web3 then? You know, did, did Bill Gates said that crypto is a waste of time. And, you know, why do we need Web3 when things are so good with my bank? I said to him, well, if Bill Gates is your guru and you believe that everything is good with your bank, there is nothing more that I have to tell you. Please go with my blessing and continue to enjoy the utopia that you have found yourself in. And I think another part of the Web3 utopia that I would like to see is that for people like that gentleman or for anybody else in the world who says, you know what, blockchain and Web3 isn't for me, that they can happily exist and continue to thrive in the space where they are. And that those in Web3 can, can do so also without us having to have any battle of superiority over whose is the better architecture. We'll see benefits one way or another. We'll see trade-offs one way or another. Let everybody code and get on with how they want to run their lives. Perfect. So it's about time to wrap it up, but I want to give you a chance to plug anything that you've got going on. You already fit your podcast in there, but shout it out again if you'd like. Uh, appreciate that, Alex. Thank you so much. It's been a really, really entertaining and expansive conversation. I hope it hasn't been too rambly, but it's, it's always nice to look forward and look back in a conversation. So thank you for the kind questions. If anybody wants to check out any of the content that I post, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm a minimalist. So I have one social media profile and it's LinkedIn. So if you want to find content relating to Web3 blockchain that's accessible to you know people who don't have a high technical degree of depth or people who want to learn and understand blockchain and web three and how it's developing today you can find me on linkedin just type in anthony day there's usually only one of me out there with a pink background that talks about blockchain so that's me um, also if you want to hear more about the evolution of where blockchains come from i've hosted the podcast blockchain won't save the world also there's a youtube channel so there's some of the content i produce is there on video if video is a medium you prefer again over the last three years i've been producing 101 star content examples of how blockchain technology is being used and then more recently specifically how has blockchain technology and the web3 community been growing in a whole bunch of countries around the world and some inspiring stories from people with really awesome projects who have had really exciting and interesting blockchain and web3 journeys and who hopefully will inspire you guys to have your own also so please feel free to reach out please feel free to connect and drop me a message on linkedin anytime Awesome. And we'll definitely put all of your links in the uh, episode notes so people can find you very easily. And uh, great. So the last question that we like to ask people is, who do you think we should have on the podcast next? 
Yes. Um, I would love you guys to have Mahisul Magaldi on the show. He's the uh, insurance and crypto leader at 11FS. He mm-hmm. is an expert, was a COBOL programmer, and is, is generally speaking um, just an incredibly smart person. I think if you'd like to hear more about the international or emerging Web3 community, I think Nyana Lakshmi from India is an incredible speaker. She talks on behalf of women developers, women architects, and and what the power of Web3 can do in emerging economies. So Nyana would be a, a brilliant person to have on the show. And then finally, if you want to, if you want to have somebody who's loud and talkative and who knows a thing or two about <laughs> what they're into, Irina Heva. So she is a lawyer and Bitcoin maximalist who I've had on my podcast a couple of times. She has some wonderful opinions about NFTs, the metaverse, and the general state of running a business in Web3. She spends her time between Switzerland and the UAE as well. So she's got um, an interesting contrasting perspective between new world and old world of Web3. So there's a couple of examples, hopefully some useful people to go after. Very, very cool. Perfect. All right, then, Anthony, thank you so, so much for your time. It has truly been a very interesting conversation, and I appreciate you uh, fitting me in your schedule. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Alex. Thank you for the great questions, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, you as well. If you liked today's episode, please rate, follow, or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you really like our content, join our Discord community, where there's always good conversation, exciting news, and live AMAs. Thanks for listening.